Pastor Luke, good morning, Conduit. How are you? It's good to see you today. Um, we've been in this sermon series called Easter People, which is a little bit of a play on words. Uh, you know, first, Easter people, meaning the people, very obviously, that are we see in the Gospels that are part of the Easter story in some way, shape, or form, right? Maybe the maybe the the very long-term build-up to what happens and let's say Good Friday and, um, and Resurrection Sunday. Uh, people that we would expect, like Mary Magdalene or like Pastor Luke preached on last week. Um, Peter, the disciple who later went on to uh, lead in some ways the, uh, the early church. And, um, and then we started the series by, um, by talking about John the Baptist. And not so much John the Baptist, his like his proximity to Jesus because his ministry started, you know, three years even before Jesus's did. But, um, but the message that John the Baptist came to preach, right, which was a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, right? And turning, turning, turning towards God and turning away from wickedness and sin because the kingdom of God was being established in the ministry and in the person of Jesus. And, um, you know, sometimes when we, when we prepare, I think, to hear a sermon focusing on one specific person, um, we, we come maybe positioning ourselves or putting ourselves in this place of wanting to be really, really inspired by their example. Like, oh, what can we learn about the, ex- what can we learn to incorporate into our own lives and our own spiritual, our walk with Jesus? Through the minister, or through the the story of Peter, or through the story of Mary Magdalene, or through the story of uh, John the Baptist, you know we want to see, we want to hear. We come here and we want to we want to sit and we want to hear um, messages of people with extraordinary faith, right? Of of persevering through um, just difficult, horrible, difficult odds of ways in which God called them. And they responded, those people responded with such significant obedience that that fruit just came falling off the proverbial trees of their lives, right? Like, we want to uplift these people and, and draw application from their lives and say, okay, man, what can we learn in, in a great way that inspires our own faith from Peter or from Mary Magdalene or John the Baptist or whomever that person would be? And then your pastor gets kind of this harebrained idea that maybe in the series of Easter people, we should, we should look at a guy like Judas Iscariot. And so then we maybe sit down and we ask the question, all right, well, um, how are we going to be inspired to greater or more extraordinary levels of faith or believing in God's work in our lives? Um, by the example of a guy like Judas, because um, as much as we want to, as much as we maybe want to dress up the story and the life of Judas, there's really no way to do it. Right? Uh, and I think what it does is, it, it I think it's, it's okay for us to say that. It's okay for us to come to a place of saying like, hey man, Judas' story is not one that we are drawing out great examples for our own life about, at least in a positive direction. 
right? Uh, because, and what it does is it says something to us or it should say something to us about the nature of God's Word. All right, about the nature of the Gospel, um, which is that it is, not a, it is not a place that we go to get the example for how all of the people in the book did things right all of the time. So like, here's the perfect instructional manual as to how to do the Christian life the right all the time. As long as you just follow the example of all the people that you read about in here, you're going to be all right. You're going to lead a faithful life. You're going to lead an obedient life. You're going to lead a righteous life to God. And the reality is, is that the Bible tells us the story of the, the real life story of real life people, um, the, both the positive and the negative, both the failures and the victories, both the examples of extraordinary faith in God and the example of the actual, like the literal betrayal um, to Jesus Himself. And so when we approach the, the, the Word of God, we can, in a manner of speaking, approach it like we approach everything else in life, is that it, it communicates to us, it shows us, it explores all of the very real and raw realities of life and human experience and relationship with God, both positive and negative. It is the real life story of real people displaying all the realness of their brokenness, of their betrayal, of their doubts, of their fears, of their sins, some of whom we learn lessons of what not to do or whose lives literally scream a bullhorn of warning. And if nothing else, the life of Judas Iscariot is a, he, he is a person who screams a bullhorn of warning to you and to I. So the question then is, well, what can we, what can we possibly learn in an instance like this? Well, I, you know, it's, it is difficult and it should be difficult. And we, I, I, I make no excuse for this because I, I think this is always the, obviously this is always the direction and the orientation that we should be focusing is, is saying, okay, well, how do we see how do we see the gospel of Jesus Christ or how do we see the good news of Jesus in the story of Judas Iscariot or in the life of Judas Iscariot? We're not going to only we're not, we're not going to try and stand up here this morning and like lift up and magnify or like like talk only about the bad things that Judas did. What we want to do also is to say, okay, how do we see the goodness of God? the grace of Jesus Christ, the, um, the, the, the love of God in the gospel of Jesus, how do we see it infiltrating and seeping through even all the cracks and crevices of a horrible story like, um, like Judas? We want to see the good news. We want to know that the gospel is there. But the thing is, is that the, the good news in Judas's life has more to do, not with the example of Judas, but the ways in which Jesus responded in light of what Judas did. In light of who Judas, uh, of who Judas was. 
So I want to talk about uh, want to talk about a few things here um, that like kind of display the interaction between Judas and Jesus, and then we're going to go through and talk um, about uh, some of the things that we can learn from a, kind of like the negative view of Judas' own life. The thing that I want to we want to point out first is something that is I don't know I guess you could say uncomfortably clear. What is uncomfortably clear about the life of Jesus or about the life of Judas? What is uncomfortably clear here is that Jesus knew right from the very beginning that Judas would be the one to betray him. We see this all throughout the Gospels. All four Gospels have pretty extensive um, commentary on Judas and on the choosing of Judas as one of the disciples and on, then on the betrayal. What's really clear is that Jesus knew right from the very beginning that Judas would betray him. For instance, in John chapter 6, verse 64, um, uh, John writes that Jesus knew from the beginning who it was that would betray him. Right from the very get-go. Uh, John goes on to say later in the Gospel, in uh, John chapter 13, we're going to spend some more time here later, but in, the, uh, in that instance, in that chapter of John's Gospel, he says, for he, Jesus, knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said not everyone was clean. Jesus knew Jesus, Jesus knew who was going to betray him, and he told Judas that he knew who was going to betray him. In the, um, the Last Supper account in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus was you know, breaking bread and handing it to his disciples, and they were drinking from the cup, and you know, maybe a, a story that we're familiar with, and he said, but one of you will betray me. And all of them, in kind of like, in this choral like response, surely not I, not I, it's not me, is it, Lord? It's not me, it's not me, it's not me. And then uh, Matthew in his gospel records that um, Judas says to Jesus, surely it's not I, is it, Lord? And what was Jesus' response? Yeah, it is. It is. It's you. Now, even that dynamic alone, there at the the proverb. I mean, I've had some awkward conversations at family dinner before, like, but <laughs> I, I'm going to assume that that one takes the cake, right? Of it's not me, is it? Yeah, it's you actually. Uh, oh, um, pass the potatoes, please. <laughs> right? Like, what do you do in a moment like that? How do you even? What? But it's clear, almost uncomfortably clear for me at least, that Jesus knew all the way from the beginning that it was Judas that would do what Judas was going to do to Jesus. Jesus went into the disciple-choosing process with eyes wide open. He was not deceived by Judas. Judas, Judas did not like paint himself as some extraordinarily righteous and faithful person, and he just kind of got one over on Jesus. It's not like, it's not like Jesus was kind of not really a great judge of character and had a, 
had a penchant for choosing people that would betray Him unto His death. It's not like Jesus maybe would have come back had He known what Judas was going to do and maybe made a different decision back in the beginning of the Gospels when He was choosing the disciples to come and follow Him. It was very clear from the Gospels what we saw just in John chapter 6 that Jesus knew what Judas would do from when? The beginning. Right from the get-go. Now, I don't know if you've asked yourself this question in regards to that reality. I've certainly asked the question myself is why in the world would Jesus choose someone to follow Him to be in His inner circle of disciples and friends if He knew that He was going to betray Him? If there was no doubt if it was like crystal perfectly clear, why would Jesus choose that person? Now, I don't necessarily know. Uh, this is maybe one of those questions like, I don't know, does anyone else have a spiritual notebook of questions that you're asking the Lord to keep for you in heaven so that when you get there, all of those questions that you have will be answered? I don't know if you do, but I have... I have this relationship with God where I'm like, God, can you add that to the notebook of things that I do not understand now, but I would like to understand when I get to heaven? This is one of them. It's like, what, why, what is this thing with Judas, Lord? And it's okay. You know that it's okay to embrace kind of like this sense of mystery and not knowing and understanding all things about the Word and about the Lord and about His ways. We'll talk a little bit about that here um, coming up. But here's one thing that I think is like, if we were to try to answer the question, why would Jesus, why would Jesus choose someone to follow him that he knew was going to betray him? Is this, is that according to the scriptures, betrayal was a necessary step in Jesus' road to the cross. According to the scriptures, primarily the scriptures in the Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament scriptures, uh, places in Psalms, some in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, some even in Zephaniah, it was, it was prophesied that there would be one who would turn his back on the Messiah, on the Savior, would betray him. Jesus knew this, and Jesus told his disciples that this was kind of part of the grand, comprehensive, call it e eternally set in motion plan for Jesus' work on the cross and His pathway, His road to the cross. In John chapter 13, verse 18, Jesus says these things. He says this. Right after Jesus had washed all the disciples' feet, He says, I'm not referring uh, to all of you. I know those that I have chosen. Uh, but this is to fulfill the Scripture. And then he quotes, he uses the quote from the quote, He who has shared my bread has turned his heel up against me. Now, understand in context, Jesus had just sat down at the Last Supper with His disciples. This was before He was arrested. He had shared a meal with them, right? They had... They had dipped bread in the same cup, right? They had shared this meal that Jesus proclaimed was like a, 
the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. And then in John's Gospel, it says Jesus got up and he washed the disciples' feet and he cleaned them. He had this little argument with Peter. We have no indication that Jesus skipped any of the disciples. He washed all of their feet. He, he humbled himself to serve them, uh, to serve them all. Um, and then they were arguing about who is clean and who is not clean. Lord, like, like, oh, if washing my feet makes me clean, Lord, then wash my head and my hands as well. Get all of me. And then, he, and then Jesus, in uh, the last part of this, he says, um, uh, now I'm not, referring to, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those that I have chosen, but, but this thing here, this, this betrayal is to fulfill the scripture that he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now that's a uh, reference to Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, right? But the idea is um, like, well, what does it mean to turn your heel up against me? Um, well, it's kind of just a ancient Near Eastern way of saying like, I guess it would be like ancient Near Eastern way of giving someone the proverbial middle finger, Right? To, 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 make a, to make a common correlation. All right? Turning my heel up against you. I'm, I'm dusting off the soles of my feet. Like, I am done with you. Goodbye. Like, turning my heel up and I am going the opposite direction. I'm leaving you behind completely on your own. Now, it was, this wasn't the only place that Jesus predicted that this would, be, that this would happen according to the Scriptures. Keep your finger here in John chapter 13, but we see in John chapter 17 as well that Jesus said this to in his prayer back to the heavenly Father before he would be um, before he ascended back into heaven. This is a prayer to the Father. He says, "While I was with them, I protected them, I kept them safe." He was referring to his disciples by the name that you gave me. None of them has been lost except the one doomed. To destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. That there was a that there was a component of the prophetic work of God throughout this throughout the scripture that that needed to be and was being fulfilled in the reality of Judas's betrayal. Now I added this to my spiritual notebook with the Lord as I was praying through this um, this week, <laughs> and to say, but, but, but why? Why would that be necessary? Why, why would, why would that have to happen in Judas's life? Why would Jesus need to go through that? Why would Jesus need to experience the betrayal of one of his closest people? Why couldn't you just make it? Make it so it didn't need to happen, Lord. Why was that? Why is that necessary? And I believe in some ways, Jesus actually answers that question in John chapter 13 in the following verses. If you go back to John chapter 13, 18, it says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those whom I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So one of my brothers, someone in fellowship with me, someone who has been close to me, someone who I've shared a meal with, someone that I've been in relational intimacy with is turning his heel up against me. He will betray me. 
Now, the disciples all sitting here being like, I don't get it. Why would anyone, especially one of us, do that to you, Lord? Surely not I, surely not I, surely not I, surely not I. And then we ask the same question like that just seems so like unnecessary. It seems so tangential to the actual like mission of Jesus to go to the cross. Why must that have happened? Before we go into the scripture a little bit deeper, I want to like let's let's consider this, all right? Consider this idea. If someone came up to you, someone, let's say, who was particularly close to you, that you had a very um, uh, intimate friendship with or relationship with, that you, that you were in close relationship with, they said, hey, um, I have something to tell you. Uh, I know, I believe um, that something is going to uh, happen to me. It's going to happen for a very significant, very, very big, very important reason. It's, I'm just warning you right now, it's going to look so incredibly bleak and hopeless. It's going to cause a lot of pain. It's going to cause a lot of anguish. But listen to me, listen to me when I say, see the words coming out of my mouth. I don't want you to worry. Do not worry. In the end, it's going to be okay. In fact, it's not just going to be okay. It's going to be more than okay. Just trust in what I say to you. Believe in me. Trust in me. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were a good friend, I think most of us here want to be good friends, we'd probably say something like, hey, wait, 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 wait a second. Let me get some clarity here, or at least let me tell you, like, there's no way that I'm going to allow something bad to happen to one of my closest friends. There's no way that I'm going to allow you to endure this. No way that you're going to walk through it alone. No way that I'm going to leave you. In fact, I can't really afford you not being in my life. It's not something that I'm willing to sacrifice. So I am here for it, protect you, walk with you through it, make sure it's not as bad as it has to be. Maybe you have to respond. Because you understand their position, right? You understand their anxiety. You understand their fear. You understand the sense of like not wanting bad things to happen. And so we respond, well, like, no, 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 you need to... Okay, Deep breath, right? Center yourself for a second. Listen to me when I say, I know what I'm talking about. I need you to believe me. In fact, let's do this. Let's do this. Something something is going to happen before the significant something happens. You know that big thing I was telling you that's coming? Right? Right? Something's going to happen before that, actually. And I'm going to tell you exactly what that thing is. It's going to be extremely recognizable. It's going to be super obvious. It's going to be impossible to miss. When you see it, I want you to remember 
that I told you that it was going to happen just like I said it would. That way, you can know, you can have faith, you can have trust, you can have increased belief that all of the things that I'm telling you and will be telling you that are going to happen in the future really are true and that you really can place your faith and your trust and your belief in me when I say that, although it looks really hopeless, it's not going to be in the end. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was in somewhat of a way saying, hey, look, I'm going to predict that something happens so that you can use it as a litmus test to build your faith so that when you walk into this next season of me actually going to the cross and dying and it's seeming so hopeless, you can think back to remember, oh, wait, wait, wait. He, he did kind of this like test of faith for us so that we can be built up in our hope that even in his death, there is going to be life. And this is exactly what Jesus says, the reason that it needs to happen, that Judas needs to be betrayed or betray Jesus as a fulfillment of the scriptures as they've always been. He says in John chapter um, 18, or in, uh, in 18, we read that already, he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. But then the very next verse, he goes through to explain why that needed to happen. And he says, I'm telling you now before it happens. I'm telling you it before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he, that I am who I said I was. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And so, and so Jesus' whole Jesus' whole message to the disciples is: Look, look. I'm telling you that I'm going to be betrayed by one of you, so that you know now before it even happens. And that, and that the reality of, of like my, my divine foreknowledge will communicate to you if you're lacking in belief that I am legitimately who I said I am. I am He. I am, I, I, I am the Messiah. And so Judas's betrayal happened in a very real sense so that others around Jesus would be established in a more strong, deep, and wide belief and trust that Jesus was and is who he actually said he was. That Jesus was not just some gifted teacher, right? But that Jesus was the alpha and the Omega, that Jesus was the beginning and the end, that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, that he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And listen, I, like I said a little bit earlier, I think it's okay. In fact, I know that it's okay to say to sit in this place of saying, like, that's all feels a little mysterious to me. Like, okay, the fulfillment of Scripture and like, 
and like the betrayal of Judas um, happening uh, and Jesus predicting the betrayal. So it's kind of like a, uh, a proof that Jesus is, um, has the authority to also predict the hope that comes from his death. And he's like, he's trying to maybe build up his disciples' faith so that in the midst of their anguish and despair and anxiety at his death, they have this situation where they can be reminded that, well, no, Jesus, Jesus told us that Judas was going to betray him, and he did. And so Jesus also told us that he was going to rise after three days, even though we think he's like dead, dead, dead. So maybe, maybe he will. Or maybe that's going to happen. Right? So even the betrayal of Judas was used in hope that it would inspire increased faith in the rest of the disciples. And I think that's okay to say that it's a little mysterious, that we don't quite understand why things need to happen like they actually happen. Embracing mystery as a part of our faith does not make our faith illegitimate or weak. What it does is it shows that our faith, our extraordinary trust, does not lie in our own ability to make sense of or to create understanding around the things of God, but it shows that instead of our faith resting in the logical expression of how we make everything make sense in our mind, that our faith then rests in the mystery and the glory of the ineffable and holy God that is now in heaven. Our faith, your faith, our faith in God through Jesus Christ is not built upon, has never been built upon a, a complete logical understanding. Our faith is in the person of God Himself. And God is big and God is large, and God is holy, and God is glorious. The Apostle Paul recounts it this way in Romans chapter 11. He's quoting um, several verses or several stanzas in the Old Testament, but he, he reminds the Romans of this. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. We have made this practice in the Western modern church of absolutely casting away every aspect of our Christian faith that we cannot outline and put check boxes in in terms of our understanding or our like logical belief in it. If it doesn't make sense, we can't believe it. If we don't understand it, it must not be true. Listen. Understand this, okay? Um, a God that you completely and 100% logically and intellectually understand is a very small God indeed. Is not the God that we see in Scripture. 
The God, the God that is ineffable glory that dwells in unapproachable life that the, man, that the mind of man can never understand. That is not a God that you want to serve. That is not a God worth serving. Any, any God that, that I could fully understand with my pea-sized intellect is not a very big God at all is not a God of holiness, is not a God of glory. He's a God of my own making. He's a God of my own intellect. He's a God of my own understanding. And I want you to hear very clearly right now that that is not the God that we serve. We serve the God through whom and to whom and for whom all things were created that were created. That nothing exists apart from his being. That out of the very words of his mouth came all of existence and he breathed life into everything that there is. This is the God that we serve. Not the God that is to be understood at every corner, at every point, with every single thing. That is a God, that is an idol of our own intellect and one that we should radically and readily reject every time we see it. So we ask, we come to that point, what is uncomfortably clear? Well, what's uncomfortably clear, first off, is that Jesus knew right from the very beginning that Judas was the one to betray him, and that one of the reasons that Jesus was going, or that Judas betrayed Jesus is because according to the scriptures, betrayal was a necessary step in Jesus' road to the cross. And we, we, looked at those, we looked at those scriptures. Here's the next thing I want to highlight out of Judas's life, and not just Judas's life, but Jesus' interaction with Judas. Is that this? The wickedness of Judas' betrayal is compared against the depth of Jesus' grace and humility. Almost in this like absurd literary way, right? We see extraordinary wickedness in Judas alongside of extraordinary grace and humility, loyalty even, by Jesus. Judas serves as kind of the, or Jesus serves, they serve as the anti-type to one another. Where the more, the more wicked that we see Judas, the more humble and full of grace that we see Jesus. Now remember, Jesus knew, John chapter 6, verse 64, right? Jesus knew right from the very beginning who it was that would betray him. He went, into, he went into this thing eyes wide open. He was not tricked in any way, shape, or form by Judas's betrayal. Many of, many of you, many of us, I know have gone through experiences in our own lives, our personal lives, our relationships, where in one way or another, we have been significantly hurt by someone who has proclaimed to love us in some degree, in some way, shape, or form, and then what seems like out of nowhere, wham, they, they, they completely turn their back upon us and hurt us with such viciousness that we're not sure how or if we'll ever recover.
What's difficult about that is that it usually comes as a surprise, right? We're not expecting it. And then it hits us like a ton of bricks. Now let's imagine how your relationship with that person would change if you knew what they were going to do before they did it. And listen, this wasn't a, or it shouldn't be like a, not, not a, you knew what they were going, you knew that it was an option that they could possibly, if they so choose, would do this to you if the, if the opportunity presented themselves. Not, not that, not the option, because the option is always there, right? In the heart of human sinfulness, the option is always there for every single person. But this situation is different. It wasn't like Jesus was like, well, I, I mean, I'm, maybe Judas can pull it together. Maybe he can do something else. I mean, we'll, we'll see. We'll let it play out. We'll see where it goes. We don't believe that about what Jesus understood about Judas. We believe that Jesus knew right from the very beginning who it was that would betray him because that's what the Scriptures proclaim to us in more than one place. Now, most of us... To be in that type of situation, to know that it was a it was an um like it was a fact that this person would betray us at some point. Most of us would immediately, at least me, I think, would I would back away from relationship as quickly as I possibly could. I would distance myself, I would run the other direction, I would kick them out of the proverbial house, I would maybe even seek to hurt them before they had an opportunity to hurt me. Now, I'm not letting that happen to me. We strike out before we're struck, right? But Jesus didn't back out of relationship with Judas. This is, this is uncomfortable for me. I'm going to be honest with you. This is uncomfortable. Like, it's, it's un, the, the, the depth of Jesus' love. Jesus didn't back out of relationship with Judas. In fact, we have good reason to believe and to see in Scripture that Jesus didn't just back out, that Jesus pressed in. That while we might be going like this to people like that, Jesus was going like this, into relationship, not out of it. Not only did Jesus press into relationship, but He humbled Himself in gentleness in grace, in mercy, to wash the feet of the man who would later that evening betray him to the mob. We look at John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, we see exactly that. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil, uh, the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. So Jesus had already known Right? Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, 
he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, we have no reason to believe that Jesus was going down the line or going around the table of his disciples, washing their feet. And, and we might not completely understand, but it, it says that he took off his outer cloak and his robe, right? And he was presumably tying a towel around it. He was using that to wash their feet. Essentially, this is what it was like dress in that day. It, it, it means to indicate that Jesus stripped down to his underwear, and he used his clothing to wash, his, wash the feet. And then he put it back on afterwards, what John says. And so we get no indication here that as Jesus was going around the table washing all the disciples' feet that he came to Judas, he was like, yeah, I know what you're going to do later. We're going to go ahead and skip you. But that he washed his feet as well. Now, listen, before we find ourselves saying something like, well, you know, maybe Judas wasn't really that bad after all. Uh, maybe he was just really misunderstood. Maybe he just needed someone to talk to. Maybe he needed someone to like listen him or hear him into existence or something like that. Remember what I said at the very beginning of the sermon? Right? Like, we don't approach this book and the people within it, right? The Gospels, the, the Scripture in it, with the understanding that every example of every person that we see here is going to be the example that we, that we lift up as we want to emulate this. Sometimes it's the anti-example, being like, hey, don't do this. It's really bad and will cause destruction. And we get, like, Judas gets no gold stars here, okay? Judas, Judas gets no quarter, Right, because even the scriptures are very, very clear that Judas wasn't just misunderstood, that Judas wasn't just, he just needed a friend, or Judas wasn't just like a little bit, like a little bit bad, mostly good, but a little bit bad. He had one screw up. Uh, the, the scripture is really clear. Judas was acting as an accomplice to satanic and demonic activity. Uncomfortably clear in Scripture that this was the case. John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus himself said, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is what? A devil. We just read in John chapter 13, verse 2, that it was not um, just Judas's, you know, bad choice, but the evening meal was being served. And the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. That there was, that there was significant satanic and demonic activity in, in, in Judas' life. Later in John chapter 13, verse 27, we see that as Jesus is serving the bread to the disciples, um, John, in his gospel, writes this about Judas. He says, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And so we're not talking here about like, well, Judas was mostly a good guy and just made a bad, a bad choice, right? There were aspects and there was, a, there, was a, there was a depth of Judas's complicity or his 
partnership with demonic and satanic activity that could lead him to a place of betraying the Son and the Savior of God. This much is clear. Now, we could have lots to say about that, and that could be a whole sermon series, right? Um, and, and, and maybe by God's grace, someday we'll, we'll get there. But I, I think it's more important that we, hear, that we hear this, we see this, right? Jesus loves so deeply and so completely that it is difficult for us to sometimes even fathom. Because what I want to do is like, I want to stand up for Jesus in this moment and be like, Jesus, come on, man. Stick up for yourself. Like, you knew what he was going to do. You let him walk all over you. You let him betray you. you. You let him turn you over to the mob. Jesus loves you so deeply that it is difficult for us to oftentimes even fathom. Jesus loves you so deeply and so completely that it may be difficult for you to even accept. Jesus loves others so deeply and so completely that you may think He is being foolish or tricked by them. Listen. In the expression of his love, Jesus is never tricked. Jesus isn't being tricked. You're not tricking Jesus. Other people aren't tricking Jesus. He just loves you. He just loves you. If he could, if Jesus could love and serve and receive Judas, knowing full well what Judas was going to do, receive this truth this morning, knowing that Jesus could love you, knowing what you would do, knowing what you are doing, knowing what you have done knowing what you will do in the future. Jesus loves you completely. Jesus loves the person that you think is not worthy of his love completely and fully. Jesus loves so deeply, so widely, so high and long that it makes us uncomfortable to even consider because we see the darkness of the world. We see the brokenness of humanity. We see the stain of our sin. And we sit in a place of feeling so incredibly uncomfortable with the fact that we're like, oh, Jesus could love Judas. Like, uh, I don't know what to do with that. But what I want, what I'm asking the Spirit of God to do in these moments is to let, is to, is to let that truth sink way down into the parts of you that says there is no possible way that Jesus could love me. At least not in the way that I see him love other people. Those good people. Those people who, who, are, who follow him. Those people who like, are definitely Christian. 
He could love them. I see how he could love them, but I don't. It's pretty clear that he doesn't love me, right? Let his action to, towards Judas communicate that it's pretty clear that Jesus can love you. And not just that he can, but that he does with an almost reckless abandon that leaves us in our logical way of processing the things of this world in a place of being like, I don't get how that would work. Here's our last point for this morning is this. Also a fairly difficult a fairly difficult truth. Um, in regards to Judas, but also in regards to us. Okay? Are we listening? Say amen if you're still awake. Okay. Enough voices for me to keep going. Let's go. We can stand up and do 50 burpees together and get our blood pumping if we want. All right. Let's go. Listen. Being close to Jesus did not guarantee Judas or our salvation. Being close to Jesus does not guarantee our salvation. Now I want you to hear me, right? Because what I'm not saying is that we need to do something extra other than following Jesus, right? of being close to Jesus, intimate with Jesus for our salvation. That's not what I'm saying, all right? I'm saying that you can follow Jesus, you can follow Jesus and not really be following Jesus. Do you get that? That you can put the clothes on, you can put the mask on, you can carry the Bible, you can say the words, you can do the right things, right? You can involve yourself in the right activities and you have your heart be way, way, way far away from Jesus. That following in close physical proximity to Him, right, is not evidence of our salvation. People can live extraordinarily close lives to Jesus and still harden their hearts, be influenced by Satan, refuse personal transformation, and be doomed to destruction. This was Judas' story. This is, that's Judas's story, is it not? Follow Jesus extraordinarily close. Harden their heart against him. Were influenced by Satan, refused transformation, and was doomed to destruction. Walking with Jesus is not the same thing as having a heart that is willing to allow Jesus to transform us. Even further, doing tremendous things for Jesus or on behalf of Jesus is not the fruit of a life that has been changed and transformed. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 1-4, through 4, we see this instance where Jesus, like the first instance in Matthew where Jesus called His disciples and sent them out to do something else. It says they, He called the twelve, right? And gave them authority, the twelve, including who? Judas. Gave them authority to drive out evil spirits, to heal sickness and disease, 
And Judas Iscariot was among them who would betray him. Jesus, Jesus gave spiritual authority and sent Judas himself out to cast out evil, um, evil spirits, to heal sickness and disease, and we have no indication whatsoever that Judas did not, with the other twelve, go about doing that with some success and with some failure in their ministry, as we see in the Gospels. But we know this to be true from Scripture, don't we? That there will be those who in appearance have done all the right things and said all the right things, but whose hearts are actually far from God. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, he, he tell, Jesus himself tells us this. He calls them false prophets. In Matthew 7, starting at verse 15, but he says this, kind of the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And he goes on to say this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, did we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's very, very clear here that Jesus understood that that someone could put on essentially the show of having walked with him, saying the right things, Lord, Lord, casting out demons, even doing many miracles, and still have a heart that was far, far away from him. Judas was unwilling here to be transformed. Now, I, I believe like, that we can oftentimes... I believe that Judas was an incredibly unique person in the, um, in the story of the Gospel and in the um, plan of Jesus to go to the cross. And so I think that we can. Um, I think it is maybe popular in some ways to over-relate to Judas. Um, but in this way, I, I believe that it's so important to reckon with this question as to whether or not you and I, whether or not we are allowing Jesus to transform our heart. Are you allowing Jesus to transform your heart? Not are you walking with Him and other people around you are seeing you walk the walk, but are, you, are we, you actually giving Jesus and the Spirit of God permission 
to access and transform the center of who you are. Not, listen, not these questions. Not, are you willing to go to church? Not, are you willing to read your Bible? Not, are you serving in ministry? Not, are you being generous? Not even, are you healing the sick? Not even, are you casting out demons? But are you willing to say, Jesus, nothing inside of me is off limits. There is nothing in me that I want to hold back from you. There is no part of my heart that I want to be hardened or that is off limits against your calling to repent and turn towards you. The doors are completely open. Search me and know me. Seek out any wicked or offensive way in me and lead me to the life everlasting. I don't want to lead this life of hiddenness behind the hardness of my heart while I'm just playing the Christian game out here. Let this be a warning to us. You will not fool the Lord. And when you ask Jesus those questions and when you give Jesus that, Lord, transform my heart into who I am, do you know that that's even not far enough? <laughs> because it then becomes critical that we actually respond to the movement of the Spirit to do the transforming work. Because do you know that you can hear from God? Yeah, Cameron, uh, this right here is an unsurrendered, increasingly hardened part of your heart and life. And you can still be like, well, I didn't mean that part. I didn't mean that part. Or maybe you don't say it like that because we don't talk to God like that. Right? But we, we may just like, well, I don't know if I really actually heard the Lord on that or whatever. I mean, as soon as I asked that question, the Lord immediately brought something to my mind. But I don't know if that's just my imagination or if some, like if that's just my, I don't know, if I'm being emotional about it. Be like, oh, I asked the Lord to reveal whatever parts of my heart need transformed and immediately something came to my mind. But I'm not even sure if that's really it or not. So we'll see. I'll lay a fleece out or something. <laughs> Yeah, like, no, that, that, that is the fleece, bro. That's not a fleece. That's a whole fire hydrant worth of the Holy Spirit's conviction that this is the thing. Warning, warning, warning. Surrender this thing. Your heart is getting hard. Because listen, listen here. We have, we have ample evidence within Scripture that every time you hear the Word of God calling you to turn from your sin, to confess and repent, to transform the inner parts of who you are, and you don't do it, you step perilously close to the ultimate hardening of your heart towards the Spirit of God. We see this in the life of Pharaoh, for instance, where it was like, uh, Pharaoh said no to the Lord. 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 And then the scripture is like, and then the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart for good. It was like, it's, now it's too late. Now it's over, Pharaoh. Listen, 
The scripture says this, and I want to I speak this over us, right? In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do you hear the voice of God calling you to surrender? To surrender your unwillingness to be moved by Him. To surrender an unwillingness to be changed and transformed. Do not harden your heart to what He wants to do in you any longer. Do not partner with the enemy of your soul who so desperately wants to see you come to destruction through your own spiritual obstinacy. Let the Spirit of God who so desperately wants to transform who you are, not just out here on the outside, but in here on the inside to make you the very definition of an Easter person. Right? That's the whole point of this series, right? Is that an Easter person is not just someone who is part of the Easter story that we study in the Bible, but that, but that we are Easter people as we receive the, transfer, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in us, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead in victory over sin and in victory over death that reframes our whole life, that reframes our whole perspective, that gives us a new path, that gives us a new future, that gives us a heart of flesh as He rips out of us the heart of stone that we might know Him and know his tremendous love for us. If you hear the voice of the Lord speaking to you this morning, do not harden your heart. I know, because I've been there, is that probably one of the most difficult things about finally stepping forward and saying, yes, I, I, I do have unsurrendered parts of me that I have not let the Lord transform, and I know exactly what they are. Part of the most difficult thing about stepping forward and saying that or coming to the altar and praying that or offering yourself to the Lord to transform is an embarrassment and a shame that you haven't done it before, but that you've been showing the world that that's who you are. That you've been wearing the facade, but that you haven't done the work here. That you haven't asked the Lord to do the work here. And so now, what the enemy wants to do is the enemy wants to take that reality of like, well, you've been living a double life, 
And if you, if you surrender that part of your heart now, everyone's going to know that for the past however many years, you've been a fake. You don't want to do that, do you? You don't want to be embarrassed like that, do you? You don't want that kind of shame. You don't want, you don't want, that, you don't want people to look at you like that, do you? That is the work of the enemy keeping you from what the Lord wants to do in your life by transforming that part, that hardness of your heart. I want to tell you right now, there is, there is no shame at this altar. There is no place for that up here. Let us be eyes wide open at our own sinfulness at our own hopelessness, at our own brokenness, at the, at the stone hearts that we have, right? And making it like not, make, like by all intents and purposes, normal for us to say, Lord, ah, I am a wretched man. And I seek the transformation of Jesus. I don't want the facade of Christian living. I want, the, I want the mercy of God to move upon my heart. That is what we are here in the business of doing. Not to say like, oh, well, I'll pray for you, but man, I really thought you were kind of like more Christian than this, but whatever. That's just, listen to me when I hear what I say like, I have stronger words about that sentiment, but that's garbage, okay? That's garbage, and it has no place here. It has no place in this community. It has no place in what we want to do here, who we want to be, right? I care, we care about the transformation of your actual heart, about the movement of the Spirit actually to transform you. That's what I live my life for. That's what I've given my life for. That's what I will continue to work for as I serve amongst you, as we proclaim the Word, as we look at instances like this and we say, Lord, come and move in us. Come and transform us. Bring a spirit of repentance and confession and new life into this place, Lord, as the Spirit of God moves and hovers and works in us and around us. That's what we want. And that's what I'm praying for this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And as they do, and as they lead us back into a, a spirit and a place of worship, I want to, uh, of course, offer, um, offer the altar, the kneelers here, as a place where you can come and meet with the Lord. You can certainly meet with the Lord right where you are. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong about that, right? Um, something that I think that uh, it's not like the Lord only meets with people up here, right? You're going to meet with people over there too and out there. And the Lord's going to meet with you all kinds of different places. But I do believe that sometimes there is this pivotal moment of God working um, significantly in your heart when you're, when you're like when you stand up and come forward almost in like actual defiance of the enemy who is telling you to stay in your seat so that you can keep the facade going. And so that coming forward is a, li a little bit of like a, uh, I refuse to, no, I, no, I'm not doing this anymore. 
I'm not doing this anymore. I hear the voice of the Lord, and today I'm not hardening my heart. And if you come forward here, there are people here in this room, myself, Pastor Luke, members of the leadership team, like others, like come and pray for people, right? You don't need an invitation. You don't need my permission to come up and pray for people. If you see people come up and you want to you wrap them in prayer and you want to pray over them and you know what's going on in their life, or maybe you don't know what's going on in their life, but you love them and you want to pray with them or you want to pray for them, come and be and do that. Like, let us lay our hands on people and profess our faith and let our faith build their faith if they are lacking in faith. And if you want us to pray for a specific thing for you, all you got to do is say, I need prayer for this. This is an unsurrendered part of my life. Please pray for me in this way and we will pray together. If you say nothing, I will just pray for you. And that's fine. If you don't, Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts. Respond to Him. Give Him all of it that He may transform you from here out. Heavenly Father, let's stand. Heavenly Father, pray your Holy Spirit's ministry in this place now. That you would speak to our hearts, the places, Lord, where we have been unsurrendered. Lord, that you would remove from us our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Lord, that no longer would we be slaves to sin, as Paul writes, but that we would be slaves to righteousness by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, by the authority of Your Word, Lord. May You move among us and transform us. In Jesus' name, Amen. From Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As just has been said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Go in peace and in the freedom of a completely surrendered heart to God where the Holy Spirit of God is working to transform you that you might not just look like Jesus on the outside, but from the inside. And that out of that work, the soil produces a tree that gives fruit to build the kingdom. Conduit, you are loved. We love you. We pray for you. Have a great, great week.